0: Hey everybody, you're very welcome back to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Asking for a Parent Podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Nocturne, and it's a real pleasure to get to chat to you again. Well, things have changed a little bit. We have some bit of chink of light in terms of some of our school's phased reopening has happened. We've had children heading off in the sunshine to go back to school, in the, whether they're senior, junior infants, first and second class, or the sixth, class, sixth year Leaving Cert students. So, Some light at the end of the tunnel. We've had a nice bit of weather recently in terms of the sun has been shining and I think that has lifted the spirits of most people. But again, we're kind of struck in in the uncertainty of it all and, and we're trying to muddle through it and negotiate it as best we can. And we've got a great episode for you today. We have kind of esteemed colleagues. We have Niall Muldoon, who's the Ombudsman for Children in Ireland on the episode today. And he gives us an oversight into what COVID-19 and lockdowns has meant for families across the board from children from disadvantaged areas. And he gives us an insight into his own experience of growing up in Donegal, becoming the ombudsman for children and the challenges and vision that he has for children in Ireland over the next few years. So it's a really great episode and I hope you all enjoy it.
1: Hey everybody, very welcome to Episode 8, Season 2, the Asking for a Parent podcast. I first met today's guest at a Mental Health Ireland event in St. Patrick's Cathedral some years back, where we were both speaking. I found him to have a warm and genuine interest and empathy for young people and their families, which really caught my attention. Some years later, we met at a local GAA event, where again we discussed the needs of children in today's world. In the intervening period, I've been following this man's work with interest, and never more so over the last 12 months, where his task, role, job and vocation has become so important. In the last year, and especially in recent months, I've been inspired by his contributions to the public health debate, and as always, he's honest and authentic to the point where the interest of all children is central to his focus. It's for that reason that it is an honor and a privilege to have the Ombudsman for Children as this week's guest on the Asking for a Parent podcast, Dr. Niall dude, How are you?
2: I'm very good, Colin. Thank you very much for the introduction. That's lovely.
1: No bother. Listen, a, a tough time to be an Ombudsman for Children, I'm guessing this much like myself, you weren't in the day where it said how to be an ombudsman in a pandemic. But um... that's, that's
2: right. I, I missed that. I missed that one. I've been very lucky just to just get reappointed for another six years recently. And I, I just thought, OK, there's no chance of going in here and coasting from, from here on <laughs> in. With the way the situation is, it's uh, yeah, I mean, the last 12 months have been phenomenally difficult for everybody, but particularly for the children of Ireland. You know, it's it really is a tough thing that nobody should ever have to go through. One, once in a hundred years, you know, I mean, mm. how do you prepare? We're all trying to find a way around it uh, and it's been difficult.
1: And we, now to for the listeners, we we know, I think most people would have heard the term the ombudsman for children. And I, I don't know whether it's just my understanding of it. The ombudsman is like a, a complaints procedure. That's, that's my <laughs> kind of layperson's understanding of it. But can you explain to us what that job involves or what it is?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably most people's understanding about it. Um, essentially, even if we go back to the original word, it's the Scandinavian word, which divides up. Ombuds in Scandinavian would be defender of rights. An ombudsman is defender of rights for all ma- mankind. So therefore, my job is to be the defender of rights for all children, essentially. And we do that in two ways. One is to take complaints and, and investigate complaints about any public body which deals with a child. So anywhere where the state interacts with a child, whether that's through a school, early years, hospitals, local authorities, justice, any of those areas that the state provides a service for children and there's a complaint. And the complaint is then is dealt with locally and the people aren't happy. We are the, we are the last port of call. Essentially, we were set up as a, as a free, independent and a fair alternative to court. So previously, before we were set up in 2004, people would have had to sue the state to fix something. But now they can come to us and we'll do the investigation and we'll challenge the state where we need to and we make recommendations to change the system. So that's the complaint side of it. But we also have a strong mandate to, to promote the rights of children and to make people aware of the rights of children around the country. And I've been building up my side of the, the, the teams on those sides where they, they look at also they look at the legislation and policy we give advice to government to make sure that their legislation, their policies is child-friendly and child rights-proofed. So we try and, and the three elements that they come together oftentimes, I can oftentimes see a complaint coming in that I'd refer to our legal or policy people. They will then say, this complaint has come in, there's an issue here with the legislation. We'd recommend to a minister to change the legislation, and that could lead to something completely different in a year's time. Because the complaints are what allow us to know where the flaws in the system are. And if we can correct them without having to go back to create any more complaints, then that's the way forward. So the, the essentially the office works in that sort of triangular way. Complaints raise awareness and interact with government and departments around legislation and policy.
1: And is it a government role or is it independent of government or how does that work in terms yeah. of...
2: It's totally independent, yeah. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm essentially the watchdog and I, I, I've been on the a number of times. I've met with uh, Simon Harris and been on the same panel with him and he would call us uh, the whole raison d'etre of my job is to be a pain in the side of the government on behalf of children. So my job is, my contract is signed by the president of Ireland. Um, It's independent of all. I don't report to a minister. I don't report to a department. I don't report to the Taoiseach. My reporting line is straight to the Oireachtas committees. So because that's that's all parties. So I would three or four times a year, I'll go into the the Oireachtas and I'll report to the uh, committee. And it depends on what the children's issues are. So it could be the minister or the, the committee on health, children, justice, education, housing depending on what the issues are for children. And they have a chance to grill me. I have to present my annual report every year. They have a chance to check up. And so there's total transparency in the work that I do through the actus. but I don't have any any um, overseers within the government or the State departments.
1: And when you said it was set up in 2004, is it only around about 16 years? Did we not have... An ombudsman before That's that. it. No,
2: it was uh, the, the legislation was 2002 and then the office actually started working in 2004. Um, it was built uh, on the back of a, you and I are both old enough to remember, a sort of uh, Kilkenny incest case, the Brendan Smith uh, child abuse issues in the, in the early 90s. And that led to a real drive by the Children's Rights Alliance, Bernardo's, ISPCC to look for an ombudsman for children. And then it came into being in 2004. The office started then.
1: And obviously, if you're going for a second term, Niall, you must feel that it is a role that has teeth, has purpose, has meaning and is important to be there. Would that be your reflection of it after being in it for the amount of years that you have?
2: Absolutely. yeah. I mean, the first, each term is six years and you're only allowed two terms. So, yeah, I mean, I had to think long and hard about whether I went again. And I'm delighted to be newly really appointed because I do think there's a real importance to the role. And, they, and there's been a lot of achievements from the office. You know, we've, we've helped to bring about a reduction in the baptism barrier. You know, so people, there's a less discrimination on religion growing, going into schools. We've helped. Uh, it's only 2017 since we stopped putting children into adult prisons. It's, we're still putting children into adult psychiatric wards. You know, there's a lot of work still to be done. Direct provision is, is still a scar on our society Children with disabilities are not being treated the way they should be. So there's a lot of work to be done. And from our point of view, I think we've, we've achieved a lot, but there's always going to be more to be done. Uh, and I'm looking forward to t- doing as much
1: as I can. And I think that is important, Nile because, I, again, as someone who's worked in the mental health field for 20 years plus that, I mean, the 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 changing over of ministerial leadership can sometimes be so frustrating because one minister for mental health has an agenda and they're really focused on that. And then before you know it, they're gone... The next one in has a different one. So that continuity would seem to be really useful in terms of getting those big ticket items like direct provision, disabilities. Yeah. You need that yeah, time, that, I'm sure.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the rationale behind the length ter- like the term is that the theory is that I, you do six years so that you can cross over two governments and you keep the continuity and you don't become relaxed with one government over another. Uh, in that time, I probably had, th- this is probably my third government now, The way just the way the, the elections went. But that's the whole essence. And I know I won't have a permanent job, so I'm not trying to cozy up to anybody. I'm not trying to be friendly with anybody. My job is to be an independent oversight and push as well, as hard as I can for children's rights. So the next six years, that's why it's only six years. I can't go any further than that, so I'm not getting cozy with any of the departments. And that's the whole essence of it is to push the government to do better and, and they're doing better in lots of things and there's much more enlightenment around children's issues there's no doubt about that many of the departments are are uh, much more aware of the need to, to think about children's rights but it's not it's not second nature to them yet it still has to be reminded and please have you thought of oh we, yes we have thought of but so there's a lot of uh, there's still a lot of growing in that regard to be done within the departments.
1: And my guess is, uh, this is probably a two-part question. You probably weren't going around your hometown as an 11-year-old saying, I want to be the ombudsman for children. My guess is that that probably wasn't part of your long-term plan. But as part of the parenting podcast, we do, we're do we really interested in our each guest's experience of growing up and being parented and how that has shifted and changed. Because my guess is that the world of children now is vastly different to childhood when you were there. So... How does Niall Muldoon become the ombudsman of children? Where, your accent doesn't sound like it's local to Dublin. Yeah. So what what was it about? Where where did you grow up? Who was in your family? And what was I, I that suppose, like? Yeah,
2: I mean, I I always re- refer to uh, Chris Hadfield, the, the astronaut. He talks about, um, he went on to command the, the spaceships. He, he talks about growing up in Canada where there was never an astronaut, and, but he always wanted to be one. So he said, what can I do that might help me to become one? There was no such thing as an Amazon for children, so I didn't even look up at that. But I grew up in Donegal Town, a small town with only 2,000 people. I loved it there. I had uh, two brothers and a sister. Um, My father was a uh, manager of the local social welfare office, so a dole office. Um, He was the only guy, he used to joke, he was the only guy he used to smile when there was a (laughs) recession. You know, he was always in uh, employment, but it just... It was a, for me. It was idyllic. I loved it. I never wanted to leave Donegal. All I wanted to do was play football all my life. Uh, my dad was big GAA, but
1: and was that I, urban or rural? Was that town? I would or...
2: well listen. Two thousand people. It's, <laughs> I was. I was town no, though. I wasn't. I wasn't a farmer. And anything, no, I was town. as I say, my dad was uh, manager of the social welfare, and my mother was a public health nurse. So I would travel around with her. So and dad was. You know, I suppose when I look at this work and I look back, where did I get into this work? My dad was Vincent Paul. He was GAA. He was golf club uh, administration. You know, so he was always giving to society. I suppose he he was a, a county councillor before he got married. You know, so he really he was always about society and, and giving. My mother, as I say, public health nurse. I would travel around with her when I was a kid, seeing the issues around in rural Ireland. Bachelor farmers. You know, you'd see de- deprivation that was just phenomenal, even just close to my home. And maybe that just sat with me. I'd never, I never thought of it. I left school at no, I did my leaving service sixteen, very young, and stayed on for another year. I think it was the, one of the first guys in Ireland to take a secretarial course for a year, and uh, that allowed me to grow up to the to the ripe old age of seventeen, and then I got a job in the Bank of Ireland. You know, so. Uh, the the year doing secretarial course was brilliant because all I did was dif- play different sports in the school. And that was all I did. <laughs> I learned how to type though. I did learn how to type.
1: That was my next question. How many yeah. words a minute are you?
2: <laughs> I was sixty words a minute at the ta- at the peak of my powers. I don't think I'm that way now. <laughs> but it, it paid off in the future. I mean, that was one of those things you do, and you think I'll never need to type again. But computers came, and all of a sudden, I was able to do my thesis. Um, so I was in the bank for five years, and. I had no degree. Still I in
1: Donegal.
2: No, I, I was in the bank and started in Tuam and Galway, and then moved to Ballsbridge in Dublin. You talk about my accent, <laughs> <laughs> I went into Ballsbridge, and the, the people didn't didn't know what I say, what I was saying for about a year. You know, cash over here, hey. You know, it just it didn't work, but. Uh, <laughs> It was an interesting uh, time, and I loved I loved the people, but I just I knew I wasn't good at the at the account side of things, the finance side of things, the targets, sales. So eventually, after five years, I'm going to have to leave here and,
1: and just. It would seem important else. in banking, no. <laughs> yes, it would. It would,
2: because it, you know, again, but in those days, I'm talking about the eighties. You know, there were recessions. Mm-hmm. I had a safe, secure, pensionable job, and my dad nearly fell off his seat when I told him I was leaving the bank. You know, he was. He was surprised as hell. And then I said, "What am I going to do?" So I found I went to a career guidance, and he suggested I do psychology. So I followed that lead and went to London. I had to go to London to go to college because I hadn't I hadn't done a second language in, in secondary school. Um, I fell out with with my language teacher, and I had so I, I didn't get that option. So I went to went to London, university in London, and was fantastic. You know, I, I worked for a year in uh, digging digging cables and putting in cable TV around England, London, Preston, Liverpool, just there in my way. And then I went into college and uh, loved it. It was great and it was the best thing I ever did. Came back to Ireland, worked in Johnny Gods with intellectual disability for a couple of years, then did a master's in psychology, worked with the Granada Institute, which was a a child protection agency working with uh, sexual offenders, adults who sexually offended against children and adults who suffered abuse as children. For 10 years, you know, really challenging, really tough work. Did my PhD while I was in there on, on group therapy. And uh, spent seven years doing that while I was working. And then that led from there. I went to work with the children at risk in Ireland, Kerry, providing therapy for children and families who are affected by abuse. Spent five years with them. They're a brilliant organization. They provided therapy in Dublin, Cork and Limerick and Galway and loved that, but an opportunity came up then to work in the Ombudsman for Children's Office as Director of Investigations in 2012, went there, thankfully got in there and just Emily Logan, who was the the brilliant um, original Ombudsman for Children, she decided to step down in 2014. I said, I'll throw my hat in the ring just to see what happens and try and get to the top five. So I got to the final shortlisted and uh, (laughs) the shortlist included um, interviews with children the children interviewed us you know we had to role play pretend we were the ombudsman and 11 children from the ages of 7 to 17 uh, interviewed me for 45 minutes and you you cannot prepare for that Coleman you know that <laughs> there's no there's no sort of go to car communications and saying how do I answer this question <laughs> children just know when they can smell BS from a mile off and uh, they were talking about their story so some of them were saying I've been bullied how would you deal with it and so if, if I said something then no, know I tried that it didn't work it was real stories. It was real interaction. And I just said, listen, I'll be myself and see what happens. And thankfully, they, they liked what they saw. And I was just humbled to get the job in 2015 and to be there ever since.
1: And to go back over that, Nile, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting about that culture of volunteerism at home. Mm. You know, Your dad would have been you know, involved in GA, involved in Vincent de Paul. So there's a culture of there's a we have worries outside of ourselves so yes. that it's not just, you know, it's not a pull the ladder up jack there's there's we have a, a social outreach to other people in that way yeah. and do you think that was a value system that kind of led to what you're doing now like in in terms of picking it up as a, as, a, as you went along and becoming a young adult whereas you know essentially it's a time to be self-centered and to be you know a little bit of a mayfainer in that regard but yeah. What, how, I, I, yeah. Did that come back like a boomerang, or was it always there? Or
2: I, I think it was always there, Coleman. I think I mean, my, when I look around, my sister became a nurse, my brother became a guard, so we we're always in the service in that sort of public service scenario. And for me, it was it was just the most natural. I look at it now, and my kids have no interest in in being involved in organisations. But I was I was a youth leader. I was in Scouts. I was a leader. I was a youth group, youth club, just anything. I ended up on a committee, and I don't know why. I never thought of it but when i look back now i just see Mm. that's where it came from it was just but for me that was where i got my status where i enjoyed my life where i grew friendships and stuff was to be engaged and also help organize
1: and that conversation with your dad around i'm leaving the bank and his jaw hitting the floor how did he come around to that or
2: (laughs) as i say i mean the first time i said it to him he says, what are you going to do? And I hadn't thought it through at this stage. I wasn't really clear what I was going to do. I said, listen, I might spend a summer picking grapes. <laughs> and Dad says, my office is full of men who picked grapes for years. <laughs> and said, but a couple of years later, I was going to do the degree in, in, in London. And I'd spent the year working in England to get my money. And I, what I did was I came back and I spent six or four months working in a bank in Glenty's in Donegal. And I lived with my dad for that, for that four months. It was just the two of us. The parents had separated at that stage. And then I was going back in September to go and start the first year in psychology. I was 22, 23 years of age in London. My dad was showing, putting me on the bus uh, to head off. And he introduced me to a friend of his, and he says, this is my son, Niall. He's just left the bank for the second time. <laughs> <clears throat> so I think, listen, I think he was, all, he was of the time where you never said you were proud of anybody. As it turned out, he died four weeks before I did my final exams in London. Um, he never got to see it, but I know he was proud of me. He, it, it just wasn't his style to mm. to say it. But I think once I knew I had, I had a figure, I had a career path ahead of me, he was happy, you know, and it was just, he was just, uh, he was a great man that way. He would really sort of uh, support you from in every angle he could, but he wouldn't say anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, he just generation. knew it was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He knew it was there.
1: And that I've been interested in, you know, obviously working with, Perpetrators of sexual violence is that's fairly cold face, frontline, difficult, challenging work. Mm. What drew you to that, Nile, Do you mind me asking? I
2: think. Listen, you. You know, one of the things I, I tell a lot I tell children when I talk about careers. Careers aren't in straight lines, Coleman. You you know that. I wasn't drawn to it. I was doing my masters. There was a summer break. I applied, looked for a bit of work in Johnny Gods for the summer and Grinnell Institute offered me 10 weeks of work, and I stayed there for 10 years. So literally, I would never have gone for it, otherwise, that's not the sort of work I would have thought of, saw myself in. But over that 10 weeks, I just, I just got drawn into it. I thought it was a fantastic way to work. It was tough going, challenging. Um, you know, it really, it challenged everything about you as a man, it challenged everything about you as a human being, um, but it also was hugely rewarding you know, and it, emotionally it was tough. Because I was lucky, you know, when I was doing it, I was also engaged with my therapist. I, you know, part of the course of psychologists, as you know, is to is to do your own personal therapy. So it was great to have that grounding and support. The staff were fabulous. The supervision was fabulous. We were cutting edge, even worldwide. There was very few people doing what we were doing. But I found it to be hugely rewarding. It was a child protection agency in a way that people wouldn't normally think of it. You know, if you know somebody's going to harm a child, aren't isn't the Shouldn't you be fixing, trying to help them, not harm that child? Isn't that isn't onus on you as a society to make that happen? If you let them go on their own volition, then the you know the responsibility falls to you as a society, and it's it's a shame. There's no organisation like that now at the moment uh, in Ireland. Uh, it went it closed a number of years ago. But from my point of view, it was it was ten years of really challenging but rewarding work because.
1: You know, I just, I I just, I'm thinking of a handful of experiences that would be something, a very diluted version of that. And it always makes you ask questions of yourself as a person, you know, in terms of, and ask questions of humanity and ask questions of the world. And it can kind of hold an uncomfortable mirror up to kind of lose, you can get a little bit fatalistic about things. But when you talk about it in that preventative way that you're actually, It is a child protection agency because you're preventing rather than assisting to somebody recover, you know, from that point of view. But I just imagine as a young man trying to manage that for 10 years, it it must have been tricky. It has to have been. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's no doubt. As I say, um, I mean, I went through the stages of life too. I was about 30, 29, 30 at that stage, got married, had my kids. And each one brings a different challenge when you go then go into a room with eight men to do group therapy who have abused children and you have to figure it out. And in order to be good at your job, you have to be empathic. You have to try and see what led to that situation in which they did something. Because if you don't understand, you don't allow them to, you don't allow the empathy to come through, then you won't understand. And if you don't understand, you can't help them change it.
1: Mm.
2: So you've got to allow yourself to be vulnerable to hear where they're coming from and say, "Okay, could I have done that if I'd grown up the way they grew up, and if I'd had the experience they grew up? Would that situation been different for me?" And that's a real challenge for any human being to think the worst possible crime. Maybe I could have done it if I'd grown up in a different background.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. We've talked about this before, and, and I had Tom Clonan was on, uh, who's mm. uh, the whistleblower from yeah. the uh, the army, and he was saying, you know there's kind of moral case for most things for killing someone for, you know, the, you can kind of write it off. There's a great, there's no moral case for sexual assault. You know what I mean? And, and so from the point mm. of view of his, his idea was about women's rights in the army and having mm. to advocate on that behalf. But I do, I think there's, there's something about that, that work that's truly altering in that way. And I, I, I understand the need, how you'd have to have your own supervision and support, while you're going through that process. So, Niall, you mentioned then that there was the arrival of Mrs. Muldoon and and some children in that time. How did that change things? Because, I mean, as a parenting podcast, we're all aware that, you know, nothing prepares you for it in some respects. But uh, what was it like for you? You were in your
2: late 20s, 30s? I was, I I got married at 30. I think my my first girl came along at 32. So, yeah, I I mean, I I thought I was mature. (laughs) But... (laughs) Was I ready? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think, listen, like everybody else, I think parenting touch buttons in me that I never thought were there. You know, I've never felt love like it and never felt anger like it. You know, that's real life and nobody can teach you about it. And it's even worse when you think you're a psychologist who's supposed to know what they're doing. And people assume you know what you're doing. You know? (laughs) So, yeah, it's it's been the the, the best of journeys for me. Um, I have two girls. They're fabulous kids. But I don't know if I had anything to do with it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and in terms of what age is there your children now?
2: The two teenagers are uh, 17 and 19.
1: Right. So yeah. have you... Uh, no, you wouldn't have a leaving cert?
2: No, I just, just missed that, thankfully, the current circumstances. But, yeah, I have I've college and, and fifth year.
1: And we've talked about over the, the the whole podcast and we, the reason we came to be was because of the circumstances of 2020-21 and 2020, it being the the toughest year on record to be a parent the ask of homeschooling the ask of trying to manage adult children in your home the challenge of uh all those all the access to mental fitness that we uh You'll know this, Niall, that you know, when someone comes to you for help, you'd say, mix with people, socialize, mm-hmm. connect, you know, have meaning, have purpose, get a hobby. When all that stuff is kind of <laughs> you're running on empty when you're rooting through the bag and you have go for a walk, mindfulness, or a bat, a bat as as the kind of option, it kind of it can be a tough year to do this job. But it is also a tough year to be a parent. And I think many parents have said, This has challenged me like no other, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of and the bubble nature of cabin fever—you know, not being able to leave the home, everyone working from home, everyone in the one—and se- as much as you love your bubble, there's also very little time to be on your own. You know, to you know, and I, I refer yeah. to Tom Clonan again, who said, "You know, driving to Tesco was the only break he had from from that." So it's this kind of lonely time, but then it's claustrophobic, and it's 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 a really difficult place to be and to be in that place for 11 slash 12 months is really challenging so how have you managed it what has it been like for you apart from the professional side of it which we'll get to in a minute but Mm -hmm. on a personal level
2: i think listen i think you've described it better than i've ever described it i think the way i see it now is it's a bit like if if you watch the ireland's fittest family and you do the you see them doing the bog run where your legs are just drained out of you and you need somebody to pull you along just to get the two or three steps forward. That's what it feels like, or, or one of those boats that are going through the Arctic ice, you know, they're plowing along and then all of a sudden they're inching along and that's progress. That's what it feels like. You're, you've captured it perfectly. There's no, there's less and less opportunities to recharge and to you know to get the battery back up, I think I'm running at sixty to seventy percent, and I, I'm I may be optimistic in saying that, and I think we're all the same. Some might be doing lower, you know. I'm, I'm lucky enough; my kids are old enough. I don't have to homeschool as such. I'm very lucky with that point. My girls are, are self-sufficient from that point of view because I I couldn't help them in the slightest. You know, I know that I, dread, I mean I'm so glad they're not in national school. I wouldn't have the skills or the understanding. It's all the curriculum's different, so. But from my point of view, then, the the other part is, is these are young adults in my house now and trying, they should be out there breaking the rules, not following rules that are, uh, have to be obeyed because the guards will catch you. You know, they should be out learning how to make friends, lose friends, create new peer groups, have boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, all those things should be happening now. My eldest should be doing J1s. All those experiences that give you a sense of who you are is being lost. And the best we can offer you, like you say, is, you know, go for a walk inside 5K. You know, 20 mm. years of age, 19, 20 years of age, that's, you know, that's not much life. So it's really sad from that point of view. And it's it's hard for them. It really is hard. I don't know what impact it will have for them in the future, but it's, you know, it really is tough to watch. And there's very little consolation you can give them. You know, you can keep saying you're great. The only thing I can say is that, you know. Just let them know that I break down too. Sometimes, you know, it is tough. Mm. You you can't, nobody can stay strong in it all the time. You just have to acknowledge that this hurts and this is horrible at times. Um, and,
1: I, and I think that age group that your two girls are in are, I think, a little bit disenfranchised, to be honest. I think there's a kind of a sense of, you know, oh, you can't go have a party. There's people dying, for God's sake. And it's kind of like if there's people dying for God's sake is the default for everything, then none of us can like each person's struggle is their own. And I I, I'm working in a third level university. I'm lecturing first years and I see them in their, Mm. in their box room, you know, attending lectures and they should be having freshers week and they should be having rag week and they should be out making mistakes and learning. Mm. And, and the whole college experience has been, and it is, that is a window, you know, your first year in college is a window of time. And I think there is a loss in that. You know, there is a, a grief or a bereavement in it. And, you know, you can't lose what you don't have, but it's almost knowing what you should be doing and what you're not doing. And I, I remember speaking to one of them three months ago and she said, Coleman, I respect you, so please don't tell me to go for a walk. You know, <laughs> it, was like, it was like she had ran out of to everyone telling her that that was the answer to everything. But I think they are a group of people who... It may not seem to me in, in my mid-40s that it's a big deal to, to not be able to go out to a house party or meet your pals or have a night out. But when I was 19, it bloody surely was. Do you know what I mean? From the point of view of even things like romantic loneliness or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. growing up in a socially distanced world, it is a real challenge for... And I wonder what missing that developmental opportunity will have, you know, when when we do get to reboard, you know, having had that gap. And and I do think that older teen, that 18 to 25 group are they're particularly affected. I think there's all these cohorts, but where we where we would say that COVID-19, the vulnerable populations are the elderly and those with underlying conditions, I think the lockdowns, young people are maybe the vulnerable population when it comes to that. And if it's been a tough year to be a parent, it's been a tough year to be a 19-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 99-year-old. What's it like to have been the ombudsman for children for a whole country in the midst of this? Has Have you seen more things coming to your door? Is it busier? What are your worries? What are your concerns? Because you'd have that kind of helicopter view of... I suppose, all the areas of disadvantage, the schooling issues, the missing out. Um, what, what's it like now?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the real sense of, of, I think Mike Ryan said it best, the, the deputy uh, director of WHO, when he said that COVID has crystallised the um, cracks in, in society where the vulnerable live. You know, I think that's what's happened is we, we always knew where they, where they were, but now it's very clear that this COVID is affecting people disproportionately badly if you're in a vulnerable or socioeconomic disadvantaged situation. You know, the last year, the first couple of weeks, everything, you know, everyone enjoyed it, it was, wasn't so bad. But then all of a sudden, you're getting to the start of April. I remember at one stage, there was about 20 to 30 emails over a weekend coming to our office from uh, leaving search students. We never, we don't get directly, we rarely get conversation or interaction with, with the children directly, it's usually the parents, but these children directly came to us for about the leave and start saying there's no, no we're, we're mentally scared here, we're scared, we're afraid. I'm a, a couple of them were worried about their colleagues or friends who are suicidal. Mental health was going through the roof. And that's when I decided to step in and sort of try and push the department just to make a decision, make a decision. It was up to them to make whatever the decision was, whether it went ahead or was going and calculated grades. And that sort of really crystallised it for me that this is a, this is an impact that's going to go on forever the, for a long time because those children, you know, they've got through the calculated grades now, and I, again they're going to look back on this and, and say what what was the impact? We're not going to know for a couple of years before to where the real impact was, but that was one part of it. And then when we look at it and we wrote to the government on a number of occasions, said so there's four real cohorts that are we're concerned about. One is the digital divide and people automatically assume the digital divide was um, rural-urban, but it's not. I mean, there's plenty of people in Dublin City who cannot afford broadband or cannot get access to it because their parents need it or they've only got a a phone. You know, and again, the government didn't step in on that. In in Scotland, the government within three months sent out 30,000 laptops with the broadband attached to it. So, Joe, you didn't just get a, a piece of hardware that you had to pay for broadband and you couldn't afford the broadband. They acknowledge that. So, those sort of things digital divide, mental health issues. So, again, not just the people who are already mentally uh, vulnerable, but ordinary children who would normally be okay were finding themselves anxious, concerned, withdrawn, you know, sort of low level depression was going on and possible suicidal thoughts in some cases. Disability, children with disability and special education needs were the other ones. And they have really been left behind in, in the lockdown because. Generally, again, you talked about the supports and the the sort of things you ask people to do to help their well-being. One of the things that helps children with disabilities is usually go to visit their aunt or uncle or cousins or grandparents. And that helps the parents to have a bit of respite and a bit of charge time with their other siblings and a way out from doing something themselves. That's all gone. The respite centres, the the paid government respite centres are gone. The access to schools where a lot of the children would have got occupational therapy, speech and language, psychology, Any other help they would have got would have been oftentimes through the school. That's gone. So these children are regressing. The parents are are up all night trying to work and maybe homeschool the other siblings. So these, the cracks that that Mike uh, Mike Ryan talked about are very clear to me from, from where I look at it. And uh, one of the things I've talked about recently is I think trying to look for a thing called a COVID dividend where we could maybe borrow now at the lowest possible price in a really dramatic way, and eliminate poverty and eliminate those disadvantages for people in the next 10 years. You know, I'd love the government to start looking at um, You know,
1: the,
2: the PUP was put together in, in three weeks. And essentially, that's, that's, the, that's the baseline or the starting point of a living wage. If you created a living wage in every household that currently has children with living in child poverty, there's 13% expected to be living in child poverty at the end of this year. If you had a living wage, you straight away changes their future for those children, and it could change the future for the whole of Ireland as well. You know, you could also borrow to make sure that housing and direct provision were eliminated, or how, how homelessness and direct provision were eliminated. And to me, that's the stuff that would create a positive dividend coming out of COVID. So that at least psychologically, we as a society would say that was a terrible time, but at least we now know our children are in better space because of it. And if if it would take political bravery, but I mean, I keep going back to things like um, the Marshall Plan coming out of the crisis of World War, Second World War. The NHS was created uh, in 1947. The Marshall Plan uh, funded Germany to become the greatest uh, economic uh, country in the world. You know, need brave steps in the middle of unusual crisis. And I think that's something we, we need to start thinking about, at least talking about can we do things better? Because it's not about going back to normal. The other thing that i concern concerned about it, when you talk about the helicopter view, lots of things have been held back. Waiting lists are growing through There, you know, from mental health. There was always a problem. Now there's a bigger problem because you know, people have been redeployed. Those OTs, SLTs, all those people who did assessments, they've all been redeployed. So those waiting lists are growing. Assessment and needs aren't happening. Medical operations aren't happening. Scoliosis operations, heart operations, so there is a lot of stuff coming down the line that we need to be brave about how we, we deal with it. But if we do it in a plan that's sort of 10 years long and has all cross-party agreement, so no matter who's in government, it's followed through. And we might be able to come out of this thing with some sense of, of positivity.
1: It, it is. you know, I think there's one level. I think it might be in the Eastern language that the, the word for crisis is the same as opportunity. You know, so there is an opportunity in the crisis to do something different. And I think there is a a reboarding that if we just go back to the way things were, we've learned nothing from what was putting the world on pause. And I think, you know, with every IT problem that I've ever found the most effective way to do it is to reset it, plug it in and plug it out again. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And is there something about the last 12 months that has allowed us, to reset things, but not reset them to the dial where it was last time, yeah. but almost moving that. And I think there has, I mean, the one thing that I would think that some people might imagine Niles that things like poverty and the disadvantage are these kind of tiny pockets of a problem that are make up a tiny percentage of the world because we don't see it. It's not visual, it's not visibly on our radar. Yeah. It's more than a pocket, isn't it? There is. Absolutely. It's it's more than a
2: pocket. I mean, I think that's, that is one of the things we have to be, we open our eyes to. Disadvantage comes in, in many different forms, but, you know, simple, the simple measurement of disadvantage is that does a child have a, a warm coat for the winter? Can he have um, hot meals with uh, quality meat five times out of seven? Um, you know, not seven times out of seven. Can they afford to put on the heat? Small thing. There's a, there's about eleven things you, you look at to measure it, and we're saying thirteen percent of our children, which is over hundred thousand children, do not live in those circumstances. Can they get? Can they buy new shoes? You know, once a year. That's all we're talking about. It's there all around thirteen percent. So you're going to expect it's going to be in every every community in the country. Um, we have dash. We have over four hundred schools, schools in a or eight hundred schools in the dash disadvantaged nomination. And my argument with that is that. You know so that's there's only four thousand schools that's only one in four are disadvantaged so it's, it is close to every one of us and my my argument again is that in a desk school which is gets extra support because of disadvantage we expect the education system to be an oasis in the middle of a desert instead of supporting the community around them to grow as well and again that's where a living wage would make a huge difference so instead of just being doing great in school the children then can go home to a household that has enough money to pay and feed themselves the parents can start to re-educate or reskill themselves to get back in employment. And the community rises out of disadvantage, not just the child in the school who's hoped to become a role model, but tends to go and get a job somewhere else anyway. So I think we need to rethink, I think restart is a great idea. And that's a real, and again, education is another way of thinking about it. I think parents are starting to see is a risk for the points really the way we want our children to look, you know? Uh, I mean, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child has, has an article that says you have the right to education. And then it the next article after it says, but that education has to promote the best mental, physical and emotional health of the child so they can be the best they can be. I think we've missed that part of the convention. We've given them education, but it's all academic, one track. One track. I think we can look at that and we can have a discussion about that. Can we now create a leave Cert that has, say, five subjects instead of seven? but you do them over four days, and on the fifth day, you go off and do what you love, and you get a a score for that as well. So if you're a hairdresser or you're a gardener or a mechanic or a writer, you can do that, and that becomes measured for you as well. So that creates the roundedness, and we assess it as we go along so we don't have to worry about a final exam at the end. Some of the subjects that children have talked about or some of the results of things children have suggested is over two years, can we not just do one of those subjects and do our exams at the end of fifth year? you know, so it's less pressure the next time around. The small thing is we need to start those conversations about resetting everything. But at the moment, we have a lot of people with a lot of silo thinking that said, right, we're only going to do this for the crisis. There's no way we're going to change anything next year or the year after. And and that's not the way
1: forward. And one of the things I'm thinking as you're talking there, Niall, and I'm thinking, what could, what could Niall do about that? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not, I don't mean that in any sort of a disrespectful way, but... in in terms of getting anything to move or change Mm -hmm. and i i'm working in health services for long enough to know that there's there's two possible downfalls so one is you have to ask everybody their opinion and everyone it takes forever and nothing gets done because you have to set up another committee and another committee and another committee and then the second thing is you kind of take four or five people who are deemed to be knowledgeable and make a decision based on what they say but then you don't get buy-in from everyone else who says, I was never asked about that. So I'm not going to do it. Like there just seems to be this kind of infrastructural problem with decision-making and it is that siloedness or is it about, you know, people at the left hand, not knowing what the right hand is doing, or there's some sort of a, uh, and there's, I think one of the unfortunate things that has come from COVID is probably divisiveness. And, you know, we've seen Neffet and government and we've seen teachers and parents and we've seen, you know the the kind of inevitably you're going to get stress and get pressure and people are going to feel challenged and blamed and you know it's your fault and it's not my fault and and you can see everyone's side. Do you know what I mean? You can see the parents' side. You can see the teacher's mm-hmm. side. You can see the special needs providers, etc. But how do we like we 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 acknowledge the need? The reset button is required, and you've you've just outlined like five brilliant ideas in my view that they seem like no-brainers this seems like of course that's what you do let's revamp leading third what stands in the way of that action
2: i think there's a, there, i think there's no doubt there's a couple of things you probably need a strong leadership that believes in a certain direction but you do need a buy-in and i think that's why The concept of a dividend and let's create something out of the shambles and out of the crisis and the the ashes of of COVID. If we can see that as a picture that everybody can buy into, you know, we need to be able to create that sort of creativity and and collaboration that was there in the first six months maybe of of COVID. If you think of it, we all, I mean, again, PUP being created in that space of time was just unimaginable. And you've seen things, HSE moved in in different directions and, and phenomenally agile We need that sort of thinking to carry through, because we don't want to go back to the normal of of the past. And that takes discussion. But I mean, I think we need to start that discussion now. When in 2016, the government came in first to that stage, and they put an Oireachtas committee together for 100 days only, with members of all parties together talking about it and bringing in invited guests. And that created what turned out to be rebuilding Ireland. And that was a buy-in. So nobody could argue with it once it was created, because it was created by all parties. We, we need to do something like that where we have a conversation. What is the future of Ireland? I mean, one of the things that I've said it to the Department of Education, they they did a re, they started a review of the senior cycle in 2017. And the first slide they put up was, here's a five-year-old and he will be the first person going through that leaving cert. You think, what? It's going to take 16 years for... Now, 2030 was the target date because they had to negotiate with, with unions and parties. There's 11 different education partners and they all have a, a, a right... We need to say, guys, you don't all need to be there, do you? Let's think about it. Can we do it differently? Can we agree things faster? The, the, the discussions that are happening now about returning school, chilling to school, is that in stone now so that if, if we have a spike in September, will they be returned in the same order with the same agreement? Or do we have to negotiate again in August, August or September? Doing the same old, same old is the, it's the definition of madness, isn't it? Doing the same mm. thing and expecting a different answer. Mm. we've got to change the way we see things we've got to change it and for me when you ask me what can I do my next five years or six years is about trying to put the child into the decision again and or the parent or the whoever the the service user is that's if you make decisions based on them you will make the best decisions but at the moment the decisions are being made based on on uh, vested interests silos department units where's the budget coming from Everything except the service user is at the center of the decision and it doesn't have to be that way.
1: And I think that the, I've seen that in mental health and certainly in the last number of years where any innovation that has happened in the last decade, maybe so the last five years has been service user led. So we've actually said, what do you want? You know, what, what do you feel you need? And it, it was such a simple question that we never thought to ask for yeah. such a long time, but it. Most innovation in mental health in the last 10 years has come from that side, not ours. It hasn't been the great minds of the Freud's or the great pharmacy companies with these new medicines. Mm -hmm. It's come from people. And I think one of the things, Nile, that I would say about, and it really only hit me in the latter stages of pandemic, was the voice of the child was really absent from most conversation. And whether that was school closures, sports, whatever it might be, there was an absence and I, I continually struggle with the idea of kids are resilient, which kind of this absolves me from actually having to do anything about it because that sentence just allows everything to kind of get going. And the, the the voice of the child and actually acknowledging the disruptions and asking them, you know, how have you found this? And um, it, it sometimes, the adults in the room are not the ones that know the situation best or certainly don't know how it feels. And uh, how do we get better at that? Or what, have we done that well enough? And what do we need to do to kind of get that heard?
2: Yeah, well, mm. I can't say we, we've done well enough on it. Um, again, if you, if you go back to innovation, I mean, that's a great example of the last five years have been led by the, by the service user. You look at Apple. Their whole thing is about how do we make it uh, intuitive, which is based on the user, the end user. We start with the end user. What do they want from us and how do we make it better for them? And you create billions. Any department who wants to start with the end user and work to create their system will start to do that. And I think that's what we need to do. There was a, there was, back in 2013, I think, there was a civil service renewal plan. Which was supposed to show us a new way forward, and they they haven't really led. I think it ran out of steam. But we need to maybe think that way. And even if we did it in the department of children, one department, or in mental health. You know, I keep giving the example in in the the budget for health now is twenty two billion. The budget for mental health is one billion, which is only six percent, less than five point two percent. And the budget within that, we're not sure how much it is for children. We think it's two hundred million, which is only. 0.001, I know my maths is bad, but it's it's less than 1% of the overall budget. If we even got to a stage where you could tell us within mental health how much we spent on children, and we know obviously that two-thirds of all mental health issues in adults start in childhood, so there should probably be some sort of a rejigging there. If we got a, a child's budget where we knew it was spent on children, and what worked and what didn't work, we could adjust from there. If we did it within the children, Department of Children, we now have a Department of Children that says children integration, equality and, and um, youth will all happen. So no child will be will be um, discriminated against. No child with a disability will, will be left excluded. They will be integrated. If we got that right over the next five years in that department alone, we could change the way people see children and the way they're, they're, their views, views are heard and their opinions are used. So I think they, the government have set themselves a, a target, even though they were about to abolish the Department of Children, the, the alternative they came up with is a really good one, if we can make it work. Because if you get the system right for children who who then expect to be integrated, expect to be equal, need to, can disregard their disability because they're supported around them, then they'd expect that in adulthood, and the system will have to grow with them. So if we can get that one right and get the budgets right for them, then we could be in a really good space in five years' time. But it takes imaginative and... Ongoing drive to change systems protect protect themselves. Coleman, you know that mm, mm. they always that they're, they're designed to protect themselves. So we need to give them a shock, and you can't, don't get a bigger shock than a once in a hundred year event than COVID. Let's use this to we've shaken the system. Let's move it forward now. Let's create something fresh out of it.
1: It's it's funny when you say that I I, I was part of discussions uh, many times about the possibility of remote therapy. You know, in terms of delivering therapy remotely. And we we had inundated with debates on risk and how costly it would be and and all the different obstacles and uh, you know rightly so kind of going through it. A week and a half it took us to all of a laptop be at home and doing it. It's uh, and it is it's yeah. that kind of shot to the system that actually yeah. when you when you shake the ball thing sometimes some of the balls fall exactly into the holes that they should be you know yes. and from the point of view of, and I, I would never want remote therapy to replace the face-to-face thing I think but in the absence of anything else Mm. it has been life-saving that we've been able to use these technologies to to connect to people to to still have conversations to be able to you know and I I always worry I didn't like the social distance term I would have much preferred physical distance because I think you can still be social Mm. without being Mm. proximal and and all of that sort of stuff but We're coming time is against us, Nile. But if you're to if we're to look and and there's parents listening now, and we are thinking about children and the impact of all of this. And again, no expert in education, but I do believe that the two school closures had significant impacts on the child's world stopping, you know, from the point of view of that pause. And I do believe that the social and emotional well-being of children is something that's probably a little bit more fragile than even we probably have seen yet and sometimes it's only when we reboard we see that what what do we need to do i mean for in practical terms so you you're going to be looking at the kind of strategic infrastructural changes that need to happen how do we support children i mean for me and i only it, it only hit me the other day i saw my my nine-year-old lad was at the table and he was getting a bit stressed about the homeschooling thing and he was saying i just miss my friends and it was one of those kind of choking moments and I just, uh, I got them all three of them. And I said, you know, nobody's ever had to do this before. Nobody has ever had to attend school from your kitchen who's had to give up their sport. You know, my, mm-hmm. you and I have a common interest in children's sport. My lad back before Christmas wouldn't have been seen without a football on his foot. Yeah. It's a real struggle to get him out now, you know, because his team isn't playing. He hasn't got the ongoing interest. And we want them to get back again. But we have to kind of take stock and say, "Well done for doing what you are doing." Do you know what I mean? And I think thinking of your two girls at home, how much they're sacrificing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. rather than saying go for a walk and fix it, it might be about just acknowledging the sacrifice. You know, in some respects, and there is not an awful lot more we can do. But I am kind of questions going to come here somewhere as we leave and reboard. What do we need to put in place? for children, and obviously all the physical reasons why we have to do things have been well-intended, and I would never want to challenge public health advice or anything like that, but the mental health advice, the psychological advice, the emotional and psychological needs of children going forward, what do we do, what, what's, what's the takeaway?
2: I suppose for me, I, w- I would love, and I, and I think the department, from what I've heard, the department are gonna try and do this, I would love them to be just focusing on wellbeing for the next four weeks, say. You know, I think there's a, there's an Easter break coming up, so as as children return, let them just enjoy school. Um, my colleague in, in in England, England's Children's Commissioner, called, says it's time for them to uh, find the joy in finding out again. Mm, you know, absolutely. let them explore, let them be curious. Why don't we, you know, when we can, let's open the art the, art uh, the galleries, the museums, the theatres, let our children explore, go wild again, and and just have fun, without any intention of examining it or you Know making it a, a hardship, can we just do the well being piece for the next few weeks and whenever they return to, to the education system? Because it's not going to matter in the long run, we will catch up with the education, I've no doubt about it, and I think they'll, they'll plan for that. But that's not going to be the measure of the child. Um, the child that comes out of this the other end of this is the child who's back laughing, giggling, interacting with a friend that doesn't make strange, that gets back with the football, um, that you know. Because my fear is you lose children from society, never mind education. Mm. So I think it's it's something about joy and fun and well-being, and we as parents, I think all we can do is you know I when people you know how people always ask for a tip. The one thing I always say is be like a child. You know, um, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, and I'll paraphrase it, but it's it's the wise man who always leaves time to be a child, and I think. You've got to hug them. You've got to get down on your knees with the Lego with them and forget about your work, forget about their work and just be with them and present. Take awe in the small things that they see. You know, they're looking out at the at the the worms, you know, they're looking at the at the hedgehog. Just be in the present with them. Where are they doing and what are they doing that you want to share with them? And like you say, acknowledge that this is the toughest time ever in the world. You know, I've I've been on radio stations where people have said children are resilient, they haven't had to go through a second world war, you know, there's nobody dying. I said, no, resilience comes from a heart, a breakup of the heart or a bereavement of a grandmother or grandfather, but these children are going through things that have never been imagined and you would never plan this to, to try and strengthen the character of your child. This is unimaginable for worldwide. So you've got to say to your children, well done. Like you said, that's a brilliant thing. Hug them. Listen, I get scared too. I'm lonely. Acknowledge your vulnerability with them, and that allows them to say, Okay, daddy gets up and does it again afterwards. You know, no harm breaking down once in a while and acknowledging it and being with them. And they see you then as human as opposed to perfect. That allows them to be human. And it's sort of there's no right answer to this, as you say, it's never been done before, and mm. it's never been done by a parent before either. So be kind to ourselves as parents, you know. Don't expect uh, them to be writing thesis. Don't expect them to be the best of the class. It doesn't matter. Mm. From now to the end of the academic year, it doesn't matter. Mm. As long as your child laughs again, as long as your child gets friendships again, goes out somewhere again, then you've been a success as a parent.
1: Tell me that line one more time. Find the joy in... Find the
2: joy in finding out.
1: At the moment we're
2: going to school and we're just being taught stuff. Mm. And it's coming at you at a screen, but you're not you're not you're not curious about it. It's not like you know. If you could be really excited about a math thing, but you're not going to. You can't talk to your friend about it next door. You, you know, you might be really excited about a poem or whatever, but you have no one to engage with about it. So you don't have joy mm. in it. The curiosity is what brings real innovation and real joy to people, not the gathering of information. And that's all that can happen on the screen. The mm-hmm. best teacher in the world can't ignite your curiosity because you're afraid to talk and you won't, you know, you mm. might have the screen off depending on your age group. So yeah, find the joy in finding out. I, I love that term. And I think we need to, we all need to do that again, I think.
1: Well, I can tell you now, Niall, I'm going to be stealing that. Uh, <laughs> and I'll quote <I'll laughs> you back. Um, guys, that's us. That, uh, if, you, if any questions come in over the conversation I've had with, with Niall uh, today, please get them in touch with askingforaparent at gmail.com you can get in touch with us through the Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. But for now, I just want to say, Dr. Niall Muldoon, Ombudsman for Children, gentlemen, friends, thank you ever so much for joining me today. I really, really enjoyed that conversation, and uh, I think everyone else will as well. So, listen, take care. Be safe. My, my pleasure.
2: Thank you very much, Coleman, and best of luck with everything.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Niles. That was the wonderful Dr Niall Muldoon there and I have to say thanks to Niall for his time and insights and honesty around his role in, as the ombudsman for children but also I suppose his insights into the, the man behind the story in terms of growing up in Donegal and laying pipe in, in, in London for TV and then moving towards areas of intellectual disabilities and then on to obviously one of the the most influential roles for children of Ireland in in the land and so uh, I just really wanted to thank him for his humour, his kindness and generosity of time Uh, and I really enjoyed having a chat with him there and I think he points to maybe some of the things that we need to do in post-Covid you know, maybe there is a different way in which we can come out of all this with, you know, putting the rights of children at the forefront of our minds and really making meaningful changes we have had this pause button on for some time and i suppose the issue is when we we press the reset button or when we're kind of restarting all of this that we take some of the learnings from covid uh, and from lockdowns and from 2020 2021 and let's make some meaningful change and meaningful difference into the future but until then uh, we'll look forward to chatting to you in the listeners questions episode next week enjoy the sunshine stay safe take care and bye for now